you start to question some of the things we use as, as measures and go, well, does that measure really tell me anything? And what does it really give me? It certainly, it certainly has me buy the product and do the work, but what's the cost of that? And is there another way? So I think it's always the question, but that's one thing I get excited about is how do I have optimal animal health and performance through good management, good observation, good monitoring, and then good nutrition. Hello, and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative, and enjoyable farming systems. All right, everybody, welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm joined today by Jules Matthews. Jules, can you please introduce yourself for the listeners? Certainly. Thanks, Jono, and thanks for having me here. So, yes, uh, as Jono said, my name's Jules Matthews, and I'm a Kiwi, and although I was born in New Zealand, I did live overseas for 25 years, and a big portion of that, 20-odd years of that, was in the States and in Canada in a variety of places. And most of that time I spent in the agricultural sector, um, quite a bit of large-scale organic veggie production through to um, smaller scale direct marketing, um, early days of the, of the grass-fed meat movement. And then in 2006, I came back to New Zealand. And interestingly, for a couple of reasons, one, because I wanted to be around my parents as they aged. I thought that was a really important thing to be able to um, give back. And secondly, because I thought I, I didn't think I really would measure up in the agricultural sector until I'd made it in New Zealand. And <laughs> funnily enough, I came back to find... Um, we weren't in the same conversation as that as I'd been engaged in in the states. You know, we weren't yet realizing that there was a market out there for meat that was grass raised and grass finished, and that there was a lot of opportunities that I felt were being missed, and have probably only just been picked up in the last couple of years in New Zealand. You know, you now see meat being marketed as grass fed, grass finished. Um, so yeah, so farming is my sort of blood in my blood, I would say, grew up on a sheep and beef farm after my initial years on a dairy farm. And then, like I say, my stint overseas and coming back to New Zealand and getting firstly back into the agricultural sector and with a little hiatus for a number of years into the personal development world of transformation, transformational coaching and education, and then back to the ag sector again. And during that time, I have sort of gotten to know a lot of people like, uh, of course, Nicole Masters, who I now work alongside of in Integrity Soils as a coach. And um, excitingly enough, our current our first program, our first CREATE program, which has uh, been run in the States and Canada. So we're busy training 20 um, new people to be 
people who can go out and work alongside farmers and ranchers and help them in that transition to have their land be run under regenerative practices and really improve those bottom lines of both the ecology and the, of course the financial and human aspects. So I wear two hats. One is my integrity soils hat. And then the other one is the hat I wear at Mongaroa Farms, which is a, uh, a wee farm just out of Upper Hutt or out of Wellington in, in New Zealand. And that's a, a farm that's owned by two American guys, Brian and Matthew Monaghan. And I came here almost two years ago now with the brief of turning it into a local food hub, which we're in the middle of doing. An exciting project. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Let's talk about the farm. And I've seen some incredible stuff that you're doing online with some massive, um, you know, huge greenhouses, shade houses, um, and and also, you know, uh, some of the sort of produce you're growing and selling locally. Tell us a bit about um, the history of the farm and sort of where you're at now and, and what's what's emerging now, Jules. So the this is an interesting wee valley. It used to really be a milk basket, you could say, for the Wellington region. And, and at one, one stage, there were 37 dairy farms through this valley. And today, there are none. Uh, this was the last operating dairy farm. And I think it's probably six, might be seven years since cows were milked on the, on the farm. Although I do milk a couple of cows every morning to feed some calves and whatnot. Um, so yes, originally dairy farm. And then when the Monaghans took it over, just because of practicality, they then switched it into just running a few beef animals. It's nearly two years since I arrived here. And what sort of stood out to me when I came to this place is, well, my first sort of feeling about it was, wow, I think this place would make a really cool little sheep dairy. So, yeah, first things first, we've, we bought a flock of sheep when we first came. And then our breeding program is working towards actually turning the place into either being a productive sheep dairy or breeding or being a breeding facility for dairy sheep. So that's kind of that aspect. The obvious place to go next is into the meat, direct meat marketing which we're in the process of working out with Taylor Preston. Um, so that's sort of, we're working towards that. That's coming along nicely. And then the next thing in having a good food hub for me was having local produce. So we, the beginning of November, we broke ground to put up our first greenhouse and we're currently selling um, veggie bags on a weekly basis which is really exciting. It's nice to have the first local food. There's a really good interest and support from the local regional council. And I think they can see that there's real merit in encouraging local food systems. The beauty we have is we've got enough land to have a bit of scale. So the farm consists of actually two farms now. Second farm was bought this year. So the first farm's 165 hectares and the other one's about 100 hectares. Um, that too was an ex-dairy farm and then has been running just as a beef farm for a long time now. Um, 
so yeah, developing that market garden. And that's been really exciting for me. You know, it's, it, we have a young man, um, Sam Gibbons, who's a Australian lad. And he spent a year with Jody Roebuck and got really well trained and was going to come down here and sort of broaden his scope and learn about livestock farming and, and from a regenerative aspect. And um, has quickly been ensconced as the lead person in our market garden. And he's doing a fabulous job. You know, not only is he young himself, but he's really attracted some other young people. So we've got that great energy of of bringing youth into the agricultural sector which I think is just paramount at this time in the world being now one of the sort of aging group <laughs> it's nice to have all that young energy and, and enthusiasm and and because they bring with them a real desire to learn and I find that really exciting what what does it take to you know you've got a sheep and beef property looking at sheep dairy you got market gardens, there's people everywhere. How do you do it? How do you, you know, manage all of these aspects of a, you know, really quite a diverse enterprise? Um, whiteboards help. <laughs> <laughs> White, whiteboards, but I think, uh, I think, well, actually, uh, I'll go back to a meeting we had a couple of weeks ago with Matthew Monaghan. I have a meeting every Monday with Matthew and we were meeting with another staff member and he created this analogy of some people are really, some people really thrive in what you might term as, is wartime where things are chaotic. They're emerging, they're new. You really have to do things on the fly and be able to juggle a lot of balls in the air and a lot of unknowns. And then there are other people who really flourish during more settled times where there's more predictability, there's more routine and there's more certainty. And I, it was interesting as he was creating the, those two different perspectives, I could see myself as being someone who's really quite agile in those times of, of newness and creation. So having lots of balls in there gives me lots and lots of things to think about. And and I love it. I love it. You know, I might be, because we're planting trees, we planted 20,000 trees last year. I think we'll probably do double that this year. So with that goes, you know, all the fencing and then somebody's got to do the predator stuff and somebody else has to do the whatever maintenance that comes with that. And then, so there's tree planting and yes, there's sheep and beef and yes, there's all the practicalities that go with that. Um, and the biggest thing with both of these farms have been very, um, well, the maintenance and upkeep on them has not been done for not just a few years, but for decades. So we're really having to peer back and start again. You know, we've got a sheep farm. We don't have a wool shed. You have to fix the neighbor's one. And, and there's all that, all that juggling. Um, so in some ways, the market garden is quite nice because we started with a clean slate. Uh, and you, you're building something from scratch, which in some ways is quite a bit easier than trying to fly the aeroplane while you're building it, which is what it feels like with the rest of the farm. But yeah, I, I like that. I kind of get off on 
on having all those balls in the air and being someone who doesn't drop them. And also, I think a big part of that is just getting a crew of people around you who are really competent that you know that they've got things handled and all you all I'm doing is facilitating the next thing being done and that somebody's got it. And if they don't, then I'm going to catch it. Do you think people get somewhat attached to the predictability of, you know, the way that farming has been in New Zealand? Like it's quite, you know, the, the world we're stepping away from, is that really predictable, simple, you know, almost pre-determined you know, determined calendar year? Um, you know, what do you, what would you say to those people that, you know, that's what they're used to and what you're, what you're describing to some people might be like, Ooh, you know, horrendous. Is it, how do we, how do we step into embracing a bit of chaos in our lives? Uh, look, I think it's, it's not easy for a lot of people. And I work with someone who that's not easy for. So if you think about it, um, I've kind of lost count of the number of places I've lived. It's somewhere around 40. So change is not a big deal to me. Moving country, moving house, moving job, moving lovers, moving, you know, moving on. Change has sort of just been a natural part. And I think you get good at it. You know, you don't, you don't get too ruffled about it. You learn to go with the flow. And I currently work with someone who is sort of never really moved or done anything. And we've bumped up against that a number of times. And, and that's what's come out of it is you, you get reliant on that predictability. You know when you're going to drench and you know when you're going to share and you know, and then suddenly you've got, you're working with someone like me who goes, oh, well, what about, you know, how's about it? We try this. And it's not easy. And it, yeah, I've, I've watched, I've watched one person I work with actually struggle to a degree with that. And then I'm having to find in myself a new way of understanding what that's like and how do you, how do you make that transition a little bit easier? Do you, how do you break it down into bite-sized pieces? Because, you know, we all see the world we wait, the way we do and we all operate the way we do and we, we forget. It's really easy to forget that other people's reality is different to ours. Just get on with it. Just go do it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that easy. You've got, yeah. to get the, you've got to get the context right first so people feel empowered. And I... I don't always get that right by any means. So it's it's another aspect of being adaptable, like a like a farm. You know, any good farm is adaptable because we deal with a lot of you know out of control factors like weather and you know da da da. And you're you're speaking to an element that is adaptable in the way we listen and present ourselves and communicate. Yeah, it certainly makes for some challenges. And it asks us all to be more than we know how to be or to be ourselves newly or to discover ourselves in, in new ways. And I think, again, there's that, there's that discomfort in that discovery. There's that unsettledness. 
and and I think we tend to try and avoid that at all costs or and some people more so than others and rather than in just embracing well that unsettledness or that uncertainty or the doubt and all those things that come with it what if we could celebrate those rather than have those be something to avoid it's like oh yippee I have no idea what I'm doing today you know we we don't do that we want it's like yes I know my job and yes I know how to do it and yes I know how to graze that paddock and it's like well what if everything I've been doing is wrong and and I think you know I've had to deal with that I had that that belief that of what a good pasture looked like and that you had to graze it. And I remember being in the States and this 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 chap that lived down the road, he's always like, oh, Jules, you should just leave a little bit more. And I'm like, no, 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 this is how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and having to give up that you know how to do it. Mm. And I think the people that you see leading the way are the people who are okay with being in that space yeah yeah fully and you know no doubt this will come up more when we start talking about what you do with integrity soils but um let's come back to let's come back to the farm and so you've got a so tell me what are some things that you're doing with the sheep and beef aspect that really excite you at the moment let's start with the basics I think the first thing is looking at how do we how do we effectively graze longer pastures and still get good production? And what are the factors that you can benefit from? What are the other factors that you know you might go, mm, yeah, that works, doesn't really work. And last year we did really well. We did really well. I had probably a little bit more time and was more on top of doing sometimes twice daily moves and then periodically mobbing sheep and cattle up and doing various things. We got really good growth rates on our lambs. We kept monitoring everything and didn't need to drench. And then I was like, when I thought we might need to, just by doing fecal samples and and testing we started using some other products like some herbal products and some products that are you know um, designed to influence rumen function and just trialing stuff and then weighing lambs and seeing what kind of growth rates and being happy with I think what I've noticed is is young stock will go through a period of not looking so good and that's where we tend to as farmers go oh they don't look so good I better give them a drench and what I've found is you kind of have to take a breath at that point and if you can support them while they have an exposure to a worm burden and build that resilience to it you end up I think with a with an animal that can cope if you if you knock those parasites out early on with a drench, 
then they've had a little bit of exposure, but they've built no resilience. So I think the first thing that excites me is being able to monitor animal health in such a way that you can make a choice. Um, and interestingly, last year, we tagged and, and did fecals and fecal weed counts on specific animals. And some of the best looking animals had some of the worst or the highest fecal weed counts. And some of the worst looking animals had some of the lowest fecal weed counts. And you just go, well, you start to question some of the things we use as, as measures and go, well, does that measure really tell me anything, especially if I'm doing a, a bulk testing um, of my livestock? And what does it really give me? It certainly, it certainly has me buy the product and do the work. Um, but what's the cost of that? And is there another way? So I think it's always the question, but that's one thing I get excited about is how do I have optimal animal health and performance through good management, good observation, good monitoring, and then good nutrition. And I love playing around with feeding minerals and, and I'm a, I think from my years in the States, you know, I just got to be a big advocate of of knowing what's in your pasture and then being able to put into their diet anything that is potentially a limiting factor whether it's a mineral or whatever it's salt or whatever it is so that you can you can and um, I like working with with Cynthia Northcote and Emily House from Fifth Business Agri because they do that, um, they do the diagnostics and they do the diagnostics in an animal's diet, not from just the point of what's deficient, but what's insufficient to the degree that it will limit optimal performance. So it's looking at a diet from, you know, we could all have, say, oh, we've got a pretty good diet, but what if you were to have the diet of an Olympic athlete? And what's it going to take to have? that nutrient density in our animal's diet so that we can have a level of performance that's a match for that. It's a bit more than just your protein uh, measures and, uh, you know, kilojoules of energy, et cetera, that you're really interested in, you know, what is it that these animals need beyond the basic measurements of what a good pasture looks like. I love it. Yeah, and questioning what we've been told is a good pasture you know because we're told that you know that little short maybe 2500 kgs of dry matter on your pasture is great and or you know let it get up to 2000 and take it down to 1200 whatever you're doing or whatever you've been doing but just trying something different and then watch animals and watch what they go in and eat you know some of those I, I loved it when I lived in the states and you know a lot of people have that belief that sheep will eat it down to nothing. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. The, the farmer next door has cattle and he's got nothing but, you know, bare dirt. So is it the animal or is it the management? And, and again, I think it's bringing those commonly held beliefs out into the light so that we can question them. 
not to make them right or wrong, but just to go, is this a belief that serves me or serves us or serves the environment? Because it's not actually all about us either, sadly to say. But It's another thing that can come out under the spotlight. Like, just like your fika weed counts, like that to most people is like the trigger, right? Get in, you know, drench everything. It's like, hang on, let's just, like you said, breathe on it. And, and what you're describing is like, you don't, you're not in there reacting, is what I can hear. Yeah, and you want to. I mean, I think that's a really, really, and because I've, because I not only have gone through that, but I continuously go through that. It's like last winter was really mild, and we, like lots of people around New Zealand, had really bad um, grass scrub, really bad perina. <clears throat> and at one point, um, someone I work with said, oh, we have to do something about this. And I'm like, well, what do you propose? <laughs> do you want a chemical? Diazinin, <laughs> everywhere. What, everywhere. Yeah. What, what do you propose? And interestingly enough, it was left. And then early in the spring I went through and I was putting on some brews with a bit of fish and EMs and things like that. And, of course, I just threw a little bit of seed in there. And, and in particular I put out um, quite a bit of chicory seed in it. And all these patches, I can go around the farm now, and these patches where the perina and grass scrub had done a lot of hard work, and they'd set up quite a good seed bed. And now I've got patches of chicory where there's never been chicory in these paddocks. And so just taking that as an opportunity to weave in another level of diversity into that pasture sward and go, man, those little creatures actually provided a service. So do I need to deal with them or do I need to let them provide the service? And why did nature want them? Why did nature ask them to be there? Is it just random or is there was there a purpose beyond what I understand? And so that could be said to, to weeds as well, right? Yes. Yeah. I love how you said these, these guys did such great hard work. <laughs> oh, they did. Yeah. They did. And, you know, you go out in the paddock and it was sort of like overnight there were bare patches everywhere. I'm like, oh, should I worry or shall I just not worry? Like yeah. worry worry's really a choice. You know, it's like happiness, isn't it? You could be and, and you know, you look at the situation in, in Ukraine right now and, you know, it, it is not a pretty picture. But I guarantee you, you will find people there who will still be finding joy in their heart, even in a situation like that. And I think we get, we get really, um, we get hooked into believing that is our circumstances that that are beyond us that that influence us or make us who we are. And 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 we have a choice. We always have a choice. That might tie in. I want to come back to the the market garden and the greens, but first, I'd love to hear what you guys are up to with create and what you and Nicole are up to at the moment, because it sounds sort of on the money of what you're speaking to here. Well, it's been both a challenging and an exciting and a expanding journey for myself and I think for all the people who are involved. So there are 20 students and it's 18 weeks 
the first week was spent in house um, at White Oak, White, White Oak Pastures, Will Harris's farm, where they did a whole week in house. So they had, you know, good indoor outdoor sort of classroom availability. And then every week there's a three hour classroom and we go module by module through what it takes to pull apart a, um, an enterprise in so far as looking from you know the point of view of the five M's, so the minerals, the microbes, the organic matter, the management, and the mindset. And then all of these students end up with a coaching session. They're put into hubs, so they work in a group of four to elevate, elevate each other's development and learning. And I think that what they've all been fascinated and delighted by is they thought they were doing a course where they would learn a lot of, of, of technical and practical stuff. And there's definitely been a lot of that. But the biggest thing for, I believe, each and every one of them is that personal um, development, that personal transformational work that has been happening. And there have been light bulbs going off all over the place. And they are such an inspiring group of people. You know, they're people who are already really, um, really talented and well-equipped to work with others. And they're people who have already got a huge amount of experience on the ground and are already farming and ranching in ways that are leading in the world. So to be able to be part of that kind of development and that kind of growth, and it's, it's for all of us. So, yeah, I, I, I am thrilled to be a part of it. I'm really honoured to be a part of it. And, and, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next one. And I'm really looking forward to hopefully at some point when Nicole can come back and do one in New Zealand. Yeah, Nicole, <clears throat> hint, hint. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I know for the next one we've got already got people applying for it from Europe because yeah. you know we're not going there just yet. I can see sometime in the future, but I think we're sort of looking maybe November, twenty twenty three, in okay. New Zealand. So, we definitely miss you, Nicole, if you're listening here in New Zealand. <laughs> Um, beautiful. So that's create. Yep. Um, and is it, is it for farmers or is it for coaches or is it for everyone? Interestingly enough, there are a few people on this course that are, um, ranchers, but I think in looking at it, what it's really designed for is designed for people who, who are already coaches and want to take their coaching to another level or it's for people who really want to take up that role of working shoulder to shoulder with farmers and ranchers so that they can partner them in that journey and that in that transition from um, where they are to building and growing ecological health along with their own personal journey. And, and I think that's the thing. It's like getting, getting that it is, we are dealing with whole systems and we're part of the whole system we're not separate from. And 
having those shifts in our thinking so that we really start thinking from multiple perspectives every time we are looking at something or making a decision about something. And I, I think that's probably the hardest part because we're so trained to break things down into simple components and then decide on what we're going to do separate from the whole. And our, you know, educational system teaches us to do that. Our science and a lot of our research is done in that manner. And when you look at people like Gwen Grillet, you know, the the challenge scientists like her have is how do you then get science to pull from all those different aspects and incorporate all of that in in your modeling of things because it makes it really difficult because you can't say a caused b because you've just you haven't narrowed it down you've left it open to all those other influences and again it comes back to human beings want predictability we want it to be a known thing or a known quantity and nature just doesn't really hand us that quite so easily (laughs) Is it this that excites you a bit? Like, because what you do is incredible, Jules. Like, you've got this farm. You do, you're doing so much on the farm alone. Before we even start talking about what you do as a coach and as a mentor and a and an educator, which you're just incredible at. It's how we first met. Um, there must be something that you can see that pulls you to this work. You, you know, it it takes me back to when I was a little girl and. Interestingly enough, Nicole and I obviously share the same worm fetish (laughs) because when I was a little girl, when you got ice cream that came with this little plastic boat and I used to go out with a little plastic boat and we lived in Tariki in Taranaki and it would rain and there was a big bank along the driveway and of course it would rain and then hundreds of worms would come out. And I would go along with my little plastic boat and I'd collect all the worms and then terrorize my older brother with them because he was a bit scared of them. And and I think that that's a really vivid memory of being tact, you know, that tactile connection with nature. I used to do, my dad would get up and we lived on a dairy farm then. And if he couldn't find me, he always knew that I'd be down sleeping in the dog kennel. And so it's those those little connections that I think become really meaningful in life. And then then we moved and we moved to a sheep and beef farm out the back of Stratford on the Forgotten Highway. And my fantasy, like my imagination would go wild with where I would plant all the trees on the farm and dad turned it into a wildlife refuge and put in all these dams and whatnot and and it was always my vision to have that all planted out and protected and and that was you know that was at a very young age so I think there's just always been a a big connection with the environment and wanting to elevate it wanting to see it flourish wanting animals to be really healthy and vibrant and and I think a lot of it comes from I really like good food (laughs) I I love good food there's nothing nicer than like 
I can go down to the garden and come back with salad and fresh tomatoes and I mean nothing like a warm tomato and corn and you know there's carrots and you just go out and you go forage and then you come home and you eat and it's like there is no reason to go to the grocery store for anything other than perhaps some toilet paper and coffee beans (laughs) pretty much nothing else and I think so it's that connection that makes me that pulls me forward that I want to see and feel the environment around me being vibrant and healthy and joyful and that's all of it that's the animals that's the trees that's the you know yesterday there were three of us in the greenhouse with a walking stick insect and we were all commenting about, you know, as, as young people, there were thousands of them around and now they're a rare thing. And it's like, what can we do to have them be plentiful again? And what can we do to value and appreciate all life? Because without that other life, ours is not, you know, is not viable or, or possible either. You didn't buy into that. Like you, maybe your brother did, but. As a, as a young girl out there playing with worms, and I've heard many stories before where it's like young children, and me as a father, you know, before I you know, had my aha moments and woke up to actually we're part of all of this, you know, I was the one that was out there telling my children to take the worm out of their mouths and put that, you know, go and wash your hands. And, you know, possibly that's where the disconnect starts, right back when. Mm. Possibly. And, you you know, I don't think we appreciate how impactful our childhoods are. You know, I had a dad that would go off and he would, you know, mum would say, oh, we need some meat, Frank. And and dad had gotten to that stage and I, I get it because I noticed as I've aged killing things, um, perhaps becomes more poignant or impactful and anyway he would go up to the wall shed and he'd have a hogget in the shed or two tooth or something he was going to kill and we were never allowed to watch him kill the animal but once the animal had bled out we were allowed to participate so it was my favorite thing to do was to go and help dad kill a sheep and then he would throw all the offal out the wall shed window and I would whip down there with my knife and start dissecting everything because I just thought it was fascinating to kind of pull these parts, these animals apart and try and understand it. And and I can see in a, in another lifetime, I may have ended up being a vet. I'm really glad I didn't end up being a vet. Um, I don't think that would have been a good choice for me. But the reason I didn't end up being a vet is I thought I was dumb and I And I think it's another thing that we don't often talk about in the farming community is I think a lot of people who, particularly in my my day, went into agriculture were the people who didn't do so well in the academic sense in school. And, And what I see with a lot of us in the farming industry is we are somewhere on the spectrum. You know, we're a little bit dyslexic maybe a bit ADHD as well, (laughs) 
you know, and, 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 and you've got to laugh at yourself. It's like we've just taken on a young um, student who's coming out once a week for work experience. And she's this very tall, strapping young woman who's quiet and shy and, and she's very shyly said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit dyslexic. And I'm like, oh, don't worry about that. We, we all are. I said, you should come out with me. I count my steps all the time. You know, I love putting up electric fence because I get to count and counting seems to make me happy. So, you know, don't worry about yourself. You're quite normal, really. Yeah. And you could just see her relax and go, oh, this woman's weird. So, you know, maybe I'm not so weird. And I think I think we, we're all unique and we're all different. And maybe we should just celebrate that instead of trying to, trying to be like everybody else because there isn't another one like you. And thank goodness there isn't another one like me is all I can say. <laughs> And how yeah, crazy is it that you thought you had it that you were dumb, you know? You're one of the most intelligent human beings I know. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's easy to it's easy to negatively impact particularly young people, you know, then away they go. It's yeah. it's a little bit like this young woman who's come to um learn with us and 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 having her get that, you know, maybe her shyness is, doesn't have to be a defining feature. Tell me how the market garden side is working. So you've got all these helpers. Tell us about what's happening in that part of the farm. So you're, you're producing veggie well, boxes. What's what's going on? Yeah, here? we've because our, our wash and pack facility has just been built, and then after we've built the wash and pack facility, we'll build um, a little uh, roadside stand, which will actually be in the paddock. So there'll be a, the ability for people to drive and pick up what they want when they want. But in the interim, what we're doing is veggie bags or veggie boxes, whatever you want to call them. And, and because of our limited facilities, we're just selling a standardized veggie bag every week and what's put in it is what's put in it. You know, if you don't eat cilantro, sorry, you're getting cilantro. You can feed it to the chickens or give it to the neighbors. But, and, and, and one of the, one of the aspects that the boys that own this place or men, I should say, I call them boys could be insulting, I suppose. Um, they really want to make, good food, good quality food, available and affordable. So what we're doing currently is we just have a standardized bag and we put in into it whatever we've got. And <clears throat> currently that would consist of tomatoes, cucumbers, zucchini, onions, cilantro, microgreens, salad mix, carrots, beets, corn and pretty soon we'll start potatoes as well and and so it's a really affordable bag of groceries um and then when we have a bit of excess we've made a few connections so we can uh 
work with other people who've got veggie boxes and veggie bags, we can provide them with, you know, whatever they might need extra of. They might need an extra 400 cucumbers, which suddenly we have um, because the cucumbers seem to be happy. <laughs> and yeah, so that, so, so it's a little bit like trying to fly the airplane while you're building it. Um, but it's been working really well. And Sam, who's heading up the gardens, has been really proactive and flexible. Um, I get to breeze in and out and do the problem solving if we get a bit of um, things like in our zucchinis. We started the season with a little bit of blossom end rot. And, and I love that because you get to do the diagnostics and then find <clears throat> find the solution, which for me was milk so you know blossom and rot seemed to be a calcium deficiency and although we'd um, put lime and things on it was just a matter of well how can I how can I figure this out and what can I use that I've already got and so in that there's some really good learning for the people who are there running the garden they now know if if that's coming up what they can do about it they just say to Jules you know hold back on the milk because we want it (laughs) Um, but using those local resources I think is is really you know is something that I want to bring more of to the farm and and get people who are getting food from here to really be recycling back through here so any nutrients that are not going into them need to be coming back or at least going into their own compost or their own worm farm so we're starting to really address wastage on a lot of levels. Sounds like you're really minimizing it anyway, the waste with what you're doing with the surpluses and ebbs and flows of market gardening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly when you're starting up because you're new and, you know, people don't yet know you exist. And I've been a little little bit hesitant to sort of go out and do too much promotion because we're not really set up to meet the need, but, I can see that actually um, we may not have to do too much of that. I think it's probably going to come as a demand. Got a huge population right here in, in the Hutt Valley and then you're very close to Wellington. Yeah, and what a poignant time as prices at the supermarket are just can't believe. I keep getting shocked each time I go in, like I'm really paying this for my food. Yeah. And, you know, I've got... Uh, all these seeds in the cupboard that want to be growing and, and I just am, am making the area. So maybe I need to get creative and get in contact with some people in my community and find out where I can participate in something. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the other aspect of this farm is, and the intention of it is to also be a, an educational place. In the not, tier, not too distant future, we'll start doing more workshops and things like that and particularly I think you know once this sort of COVID wave has done its thing and we can start mingling and doing some group things with a bit more ease I'm really looking forward to having you know schools and school children and and hooking up with other groups of people so that we can have them have them know it's it's really doable because I think urban farming is a real opportunity. And if you look at 
during the Second World War, I think it was in America, you know, nearly 50% of their food was grown with urban farming and small-scale farming during that time. And even if you look at the food that's consumed in the world, I think it's something like 75% of it is grown on small scale. So that's less than, I think it's less than five acres. So the opportunity is really there. It's just ha people having a little bit of know-how of what are some of those basics that you can do to grow a few things and, and have people grow things where they get some early wins and it's easy so that they build their confidence and their interest. So I'm really looking forward to being able to have school groups out here and maybe even doing things like putting aside, you know, you might have several schools and each school has its own garden bed. So our garden beds are 25 metres long and, and being able to create their own little farm and then they could bring it to the wash and pack area and process it and, you know, take it up to the cafe and fix it up and, and have a community dinner or, you know, there's so many things you could be doing to really get people engaged. Two things are coming up for me now, Jules. Um, one, is, is this a really viable thing for any farmer to look into introducing to their farm systems, growing their own food and maybe some for the community? Like, I'll just throw the second piece of that question in. What are the sort of hoops you've got to jump through? Is there, is there, you know, regulations? Do you have to have different certifications to be able to do this type of production, Jules? Um, I'll answer the second one first. The, the, on the produce end of things, you know, the market gardening end of things, it's actually not that difficult. You, you know, you need to have, make sure that you've got potable water and all of that. You don't have to go through MPI. You can go through National Program 1. And we've got a local guy we're working with who's really good. And it's not difficult. None of it actually is difficult. If you're going to get into processing that food one step further, then you need to go through MPI, mm -hmm. um, jump through a few more hoops. But you can end up crossing over both of those regulatory bodies. But as far as growing a bit of produce and selling it from that perspective, it's not terribly difficult. Um, I think, you know, I think we, when I look back to my parents who, you know, grew up during the Second World War and then they moved to England and lived in England. My mum moved to England in 1946 to study music. And then dad followed her to marry her and they stayed in England for a number of years farming. And, you know, I look at the old photographs of them out in the garden together and they always grew a lot of their own food. And then, of course, they came back to New Zealand and they were always avid gardeners. And we always had a big veggie garden. And I think we ended up in a in a society that was trying very hard to make things easier and more convenient. You know, dishwashers and electric this and this thing and convenience prepackaged food and microwaves and everything's been designed to make it easier and more convenient. 
but we haven't confronted the fact that what it's created is a real disconnect. And why do you want it easier? You know, what it's like I grew up in a house without a dishwasher and I've lived in a few houses with dishwashers and I don't use them. I might if I've got a group of people and a lot of plates. But I actually like my hands in warm water. It's a it's a kind of a little time of some meditative thought or some pondering or and and I often ask myself, why are we trying to avoid the basics of living? The you know, the the doing of the doing of the daily things and 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 being in the garden and growing something, whether it's some food or some plants that are just lovely to look at or smell or whatever I would pick. I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure when the game that human beings play became one of do less and have more. Like, when did we decide that the game to play was to have as much as you could, as many houses, as much money, as many boats and yachts and trailers and holidays and excess of this and excess of that, while the people around you struggle with not enough. Like, that's never made sense to me. Why would I want more than I need and be happy to watch somebody else have not enough? So, so again, I think it's a disconnect. It's a disconnect from our neighbor it's a disconnect from those around us and from ourselves it's massive what you said about convenience like that really hit me because you know how convenient is it to get a high fecal account and then just buy the product how convenient is it to uh you know just use a residual of 1200 as the target as to when to shift the animals you know how convenient is it to buy your vegetables from the supermarket or even better or here i am saying falling into the trap myself because i do it ordering my food online and it comes to my door Mm. because if you look there's one common denominator in all of that and that is we don't have to think So is our world of convenience or has our world of convenience actually dumbed us down? Yes, yeah, and has it impacted our lack of fulfilment and satisfaction? I would would say absolutely. Because I too love doing the dishes. People think I'm mad. I love washing the dishes. And then when I get those dishes out, it's like, it's not just this thing I put my food on. You know, it's part of the meal. And and for me, I think it's, you know, I grew up in a family with three other siblings and doing the dishes after dinner was either a really fun time or a massive <laughs> argument. <laughs> I had I had one sister who always suddenly had to go to the bathroom. So yeah, yeah, she yeah. was kind of out of the picture when it came to doing the dishes. And then and then another one that would drop things quite regularly. <laughs> and 
And then a father who would always come in and go, oh, you know, let me do it. It'll be done properly. So, you know, there was all those family dynamics. But you go, you know, when I lie on my deathbed, those will be the memories. And those are the memories that I recall and and relive now. Because if I think of family, that's what I think of. I think of sitting around the table with lots of conversations and, you know, six conversations at the same time and loud laughter and mum saying, I can't hear anything, (laughs) which you couldn't because we're all loud and then doing the dishes. So, you know, if that, that's, that's part of my life, but it's a precious part of my life. And I, I think we, somehow we lost valuing the, preciousness of those simple interactions you know planting a tree and watching it grow and going back years later and going wow yeah it was an instant was it it wasn't an instant yeah no and it's probably my my only sort of regret in being someone who's um mobilized themselves multiple times (laughs) during my lifetime is you there's something to be said for staying somewhere for a long time and really creating that place of beauty and and you know my mum passed away a couple of years ago now and I'd spent two years at home taking care of her before after dad died and before she passed away and then was sort of responsible for moving on the family home and selling the family home in conjunction with my sisters. And, and you know, the, the trees that were there were trees that I'd helped plant as a child. And, you know, there's something, and this is where I think our Indigenous people really speak to this. There's some part of you that is part of that place, you know, your monga and your awa and your, it, it, it's, it runs through you and you through it. And, and it's that connection. And I, and I don't think you have to have a particular heritage to get that. I feel like I have that in me that runs deeply in me and I that's probably more than anything why I do what I do is I know I am of this earth and it comes back to the worms you know I never ever wanted to be embalmed or cremated even as a young girl it's like no dig a hole and put me in I want the worms to eat me please Mm. I want to really be you know dust to dust I want to be recycled the same as I saw all those sheep because, you know, in that my day and age, you dug a hole and buried a sheep. You didn't put it down an offal pit so it could breed all those flies so you could get fly-blown sheep. We didn't do that then. But it does sell another chemical doing it the other way. Yeah, I had no idea that we almost created blowflies. Like I've been listening to Peter Andrews recently. And- okay. He talked about in Australia how they had the great dust bowl, the great sand um, 
they basically go out and they were having sheep drown in sand and millions of them and and then the carcasses literally were the breeding ground for or before that they never had blowflies after that blowflies everywhere wow incredible you know and, and and if you look at nature so nature came in and dealt with what needed dealing with and now i mean that's a, that's another interesting one cuz this year the conditions have been such that you know we've had a little bit of fly strike problem and and again it's like what can you use instead of using a chemical well there's tea tree oil and used right it works well Mm. Um, and then how can we you know how can we make it so that there are less flies and and that's one of the things for me it's like well let's not have an awful hole in the farm because that's always a breeding ground for flies let's compost all those dead animals or if you're butchering all that guts so that you're recycling it rather than creating something you don't want and it's more than recycling isn't it because a lot of people will like hear the word recycle and, and they cringe already like, you know eyes rolling already but what you're what you're describing there is actually you're creating a a powerful input rather than a problem waste product yep that compost can then go through and be a nutrient base for you know the gardens Closing the loops. Speaking of that, I could talk to you all day, but we better close this loop. And, okay, let's do it. And I want to close it with a question. What would you say to someone who's listening who's just pricked their ears up to the conversation of natural, regenerative, biological food production? What would you say to that person who's just started their inquiry? Maybe they're still telling themselves stories about why they can't. I suppose it would depend a little bit on what their curiosity level is. I think one of the best things and the most impactful things that we can do is actually just go dig a hole because there's a whole world down there to be discovered. I remember when Nicole started getting me to do visual soil assessments and I was like, I remember doing the first one going, oh, God, I have no idea what I'm doing here or what I should be thinking about what I'm doing. So I think find someone who knows a little bit more than you do. They don't have to know a lot more, but a little bit more and go exploring with them and start learning because I think the biggest thing we've been missing is, and it's why I love Quorum Sense, is having that collective group learning you know stopping individuals and start functioning together as community and have community learning opportunities and and i think that's probably the most important thing go find a friend and go exploring don't do it alone oh jules that was beautiful jules thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy day to come and be with us and inspire people give them some wisdom and um look i acknowledge you for what you do in the world and for all of us thank you well and thank you Jono. it's always a great pleasure to hang out with you mm-hmm.
This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.